This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Our scripture reading tonight comes from John chapter 8. John 8, and we will be looking at verses 12 through 30. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would know my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Because he says, Where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, we hear in it important words, words of life and death. I pray that by your spirit, you would prepare our hearts to receive them and to act upon them and to believe them. 
I pray that most of all you would shine forth in this text your gospel by which we have salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What would it be like to live without light? Light is something very important, but it is often something we take for granted until we don't have it. The sun comes up in the morning and we have it there until it goes back down in the evening. And so it has always been and so shall it ever be. We now live in an age where we have electricity. And so we can have light independently of the sun. We can have light even in the hours after the sun goes down. We're so used to having light that we probably don't think much of not having it when we need it. I mean, the consequences of not having light, they can range from the relatively benign, something like you might stub your toe when you're fumbling around in the dark in your house at night, to the dangerous and the deadly. You're attacked by a predator, or you fall off a cliff, or encounter some other grave danger that you otherwise would have seen and avoided if there was light. So light is not only a physical need for the physical life, but we will be learning in the coming weeks in John, in this section, our need for spiritual light, for our spiritual life, and how Jesus is our light, and what that means for us, and what that means for the world. We have been looking at other teachings in John and the outworkings of them in which Jesus uses these ordinary yet necessary things. So he's used bread and water to describe the spiritual work that he has come to do. But now we pivot to a section where Jesus is revealed as the light of the world. We see this section begin, as many in John have, with a disputation between Jesus and his opponents, these scribes and Pharisees, these religious leaders of the Jews. They are now expending great time and efforts to try to trap Jesus, to trouble him, to slow the advance of his word, and even to arrest and kill him. They do this because they do not believe. They do this to preserve the status quo their power and authority and interpretations of the law. Jesus is an existential threat to the way things have always been. And for this, they think he must be punished and silenced. And so we will look tonight at Jesus' first teachings concerning himself as the light of the world. We will do this in three points. First, we see the light revealed in verses 12 through 18, Jesus reveals that he is the light and what that means. Second, the light rejected in verses 19 through 24. Jesus' enemies will not accept that he is the light. And then third, we will see the light received in verses 25 through 30. Though many reject Jesus, some will believe. So again, the light revealed, the light rejected, and the light received. First, we see the light revealed in verses 12 through 18. Picking up where we left off last time, after the episode with the adulterous woman and the sham proceedings surrounding her that Jesus was able to silence by revealing to the Jewish leaders their own sins, we see that Jesus speaks to them again, those who are gathered in Jerusalem at the temple. doesn't seem that any more time passes. 
So though he is addressing roughly the same group of people, he introduces a new teaching in verse 12. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And we have already established the importance of physical light to the physical life. But again, Jesus, as he has often done, he is describing with a simple physical thing, a spiritual reality, something that he has come to do. The one who follows him does not walk in darkness. And we also see that this light is connected to life. Whoever follows Jesus has the light of life, the sort of spiritual and eternal life that only Christ brings. So what is darkness in this sense? Well, it is said in contrast to those who believe and follow Jesus and have the life that comes from him. What does the unbelieving world have? It engages in and glorifies sin. It worships false gods. It glorifies self-rule, autonomy. It functions mainly on the serpent's lie from the garden that you will be like God. The darkness is the system of the world. The world power is unified in their opposition to Christ. You don't have to look very far for very long to find this darkness and the things that come from it. You also don't have to look far to see how this darkness correlates to death. It is in opposition to the light of life. The world and its ways produce death. In our day, we see a culture of death. We see things like abortion, euthanasia, mutilation, and on and on it goes. But even more grave than all of this is the spiritual death that dominates the world and receives those who remain in it. It is into this darkness of the world that Jesus came. All the way back in John chapter 1, the Son, the Word, was introduced to us as the light which shone into the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. What we are seeing now is the background to this. What does it mean that Jesus was the light? What does it mean that the darkness did not comprehend him? Well, we start to see that immediately... In verse 13, when the Pharisees respond to Jesus' claims about the light, you bear witness of yourself, your witness is not true. In other words, you're lying. You're speaking about yourself, but you have nothing to support your claim. Now, it is true that Jesus is speaking concerning himself, that he is the light. But his witness is true. This is his response in verse 14. And he expands on this by again invoking his divine origin. I know where I came from and where I am going. He knows that he is sent from the Father and that he is divine. He knows while fallen and sinful men need witness and they need evidence to establish the truthfulness of their claims, God doesn't. God's word is self-attesting, self-authenticating. It rests on the authority and the certainty of the one who gave it. No human being can properly stand in judgment over God's word. Yet, it is the world's way to attempt to put the truth of God under human judgment, to question its reliability, to attack it with the claims of science and philosophy and human experience. This is all the world can do because 
Apart from the illuminating and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, no one can and no one will receive God at his word. And this is true of these Pharisees. They don't know where Jesus came from and where he is going because they cannot. And so they have judged him according to the flesh. They have judged him according to their human logic and laws and standards and reason because that's all they have to go on. But Jesus says he judges no one. Remember from last time that Jesus has not come in his incarnation as the judge. He has revealed that he will be the judge of the living and the dead upon his return. But this time he has come for salvation. He has come to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But if Jesus judges and when he judges... His judgment is true because it is the very judgment of God. It is the only perfectly true judgment there is. Human judgment can and does fail all the time. But Jesus then proceeds to counter the Pharisees using their own law. He appeals to Deuteronomy 17.6, which states that one may be only put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That is the judicial standard. Jesus then says that he bears witness of himself, and the Father also bears witness concerning him. Jesus speaks with Trinitarian authority and credibility. And this also continues to stress a point that is made all throughout John. There is no knowledge of God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. No Son, no Father. No Jesus, no salvation. Those who would claim to know God apart from belief in Christ worship a false God and are condemned in their sins. And that brings us to our next point. After the light revealed, we come to the light rejected in verses 19 through 24. These statements of Jesus lead the Pharisees to a question Where is your father? They do not understand that Jesus' Father is the Father. They do not believe in Jesus, and thus they think perhaps he's talking about some other father figure who would appear and speak in his defense. But this question coming from them shows their ignorance and unbelief. These are the Pharisees. They are the dominant religious party of first century Judaism. They should be the ones who the people should turn to to be taught the things of God. And yet their hearts are so far from God that the Son of God comes to them and reveals God the Father to them, and they are completely lost. They're completely set against Jesus and whatever he has to say. And Jesus doesn't mince words in his response. You know neither me nor my Father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. So not to beat a dead horse, but here it is again. No Jesus, no God. No Jesus, no salvation. If they, the teachers and religious leaders of Israel, really knew the God they claimed to worship and teach, they would have recognized Jesus and believed in his teaching. But this is not merely a them problem. It carries broader implications. Every week, millions of people across this country, even billions of people around the world, come into churches. 
Many were even baptized. Some even get into pulpits and preach. And externally and visibly, they might appear to belong to the faith. They might demonstrate something of the marks of true religion. I mean, the Pharisees were essentially the leaders of what was the visible church at the time, the worship of God as it was administered in the Old Covenant. Yet it seems that most of them, and many in our day, have the same problem. They are lost. They lack membership in the invisible church. They lack the saving faith that only God can work in them. The cautionary tale in this is that none of us are saved by occupying a pew. None of us are saved by performing any Christian-associated or Christian-looking activities. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Faith, belief, that is the dividing line. Jesus has rebuked the Pharisees for their unbelief. Now, they would not have liked this. It was the statements like these that had them so angry at him. This is why they've been plotting to arrest and kill him. But they don't. They can't. Not yet. Why? Well, we're told again in verse 20 something we have been told before. For his hour had not yet come. Jesus will continue to work and teach and live on the earth for exactly as long as he purposes because he is God in the flesh and he is sovereign over the actions of man, even evil men who do not believe him and seek to destroy him. Knowing this, Jesus speaks again in verse 21. I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So Jesus is pronouncing damnation eternal condemnation on these unbelieving Pharisees. Not only is he sovereign over his own life and death and how that's going to be carried out, but he is also sovereign over salvation. He's going into heaven to prepare a place for his people where those who are against him will never go. But they continue to misunderstand. In verse 22, they think now that Jesus is perhaps contemplating killing himself. Previously in a similar situation, when Jesus talked about going where they could not, they thought he might be hinting at going far away, going into the dispersion among the Greeks to teach the Greeks. Now they think he's going to kill himself. They're still missing the point completely that Jesus is talking about these eternal and spiritual realities. Jesus answers their question in verse 23. You are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Jesus' opponents here belong to the world. They are not his. They belong to the darkness. And apart from God's work in them, they do not and cannot believe. As John Calvin puts it, no man, therefore, will ever be qualified to become a disciple of Christ till Christ has formed him by his Spirit. And hence it arises that faith is so seldom found in the world because all mankind are naturally opposed and averse to Christ except those whom he elevates by the special grace of his Holy Spirit. So apart from the Spirit illuminating the gospel, 
illuminating the Word of God to people, no one will ever believe it. No one can ever receive it. Jesus makes it more clear in verse 24. For if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Now what does it mean when Jesus says, I am He? Well, He says, I am. He's talking about His divinity. One must believe that He is God having come into the flesh. One must believe that He and He alone is the way to salvation. And no other way to salvation exists. One must believe what is revealed in the Word of God concerning our salvation. This is the choice of all choices. Believe in Jesus, believe in His Word, believe in His person and work, or die in your sins. Those are the only options. There is no salvation through anyone else, through anything else, through any works, any other gods, any other gospels. None of it saves. Believe in Jesus or die in your sins. So the choice has been put before the crowd. So what will they do next? Seems some have already made their choice and been confirmed in it. They will die in their sins. But not everyone. And this brings us to our final point. After the light revealed and the light rejected, we come to the light received in verses 25 through 30. The crowd continues to press. They're still not getting it. They ask Jesus, who are you? Now, it is not as though he has not told them, and he even says so. Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. You notice as we go through this book, in places it starts to sound a little repetitive. Jesus reaffirms the same things about himself over and over again. His divine origin, his equality with the Father, the exclusivity of salvation in him, and the imminence of his departure the certainty of his coming again, and final judgment. But despite the repetition, they do not understand. Again, they cannot understand because it is not given to them to understand by the spiritual illumination that God alone can give. Yet he will continue to say to them over and over again, he says, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you. Jesus makes true judgments and true sayings. But he does not do this on his own, solely by his own authority. He says, but he who sent me, the Father, is true, and I speak to the world things which I heard from him. Jesus' redemptive work is according to the will and purpose of the Father. The three persons of the Trinity are united in perfect covenantal union concerning what Christ will accomplish and the Spirit will apply for believers according to the electing and saving decree of the Father. But this too, in this crowd, is largely not understood. The crowd does not understand that Jesus has spoken these words concerning God the Father. They still think he's talking about some other father, someone else out there somewhere who's giving Jesus his marching orders. Jesus recognizes their incapacity to understand, yet foretells a coming situation where it will not be so in verse 28. 
When you lift up the Son of Man, he says. So when Jesus is lifted up, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, remember back in John 3 how Jesus brought that up to Nicodemus. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. So Jesus' purpose is to go to the cross, to suffer and to die. But that will not be the end of it. In fact, what seems like defeat and evil and sorrow, what seems like Jesus' enemies prevailing will be the greatest proof and revelation of Christ's divine origin and saving power. When he is wounded and broken and crushed for sins, and yet he will be raised from the dead, conquering sin and death and hell forever. But this is not merely evidential proof. Many try to do it this way. They say, oh, Jesus came back from the dead. That should persuade you to believe him. Many try to make this argument, build apologetics around this argument. But it is clear from this text and others before that no one can even believe that. They can even, no one can even believe in the resurrection apart from God's will and work. After Christ is raised from the dead, after he ascends on high to the right hand of the Father, the Holy Spirit will be poured out on the earth in a new and special way, such that the gospel will go forth to places it has never been heard. A people drawn from every tribe, tongue, and nation will receive it. They will repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness and eternal life. This Trinitarian fellowship at work in Christ's incarnation by which the Father is with him and they will in agreement and he is anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So too does this Trinity work in our redemption and the Holy Spirit is poured out bringing people to believe. But we see even on this day John describes that some of the crowd who hear this teaching, despite its somewhat veiled and shadowy form, do believe in Jesus. Even as the general response to Jesus seems to be this rejection and plotting and confusion, God is doing his saving work, even that day, among this hostile crowd in Jerusalem. Even as resistance is strong and rejection is everywhere, Salvation comes to the lost sheep of Israel. Christ is revealed. He is set forth in such a way that those whom God has called to salvation and eternal life receive his word. The light has shone into the darkness and the darkness has not comprehended it. But John 1 that told us that also tells us this. To those who received him, those who believed in his name, in Jesus' name, those he gave the right to become children of God. And the same words of life that were put before the crowd that day in Jerusalem have been preserved for us by God's providence. They're now set before you here tonight. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came in the flesh fulfilled the righteousness of the law perfectly, and suffered death. 
He was lifted up that those who would look upon him would live. He was raised from the dead, and he has now gone to make a place for his people. To all who would repent of their sins and believe in him, come eternal life and salvation and forgiveness. But Jesus will come to earth again one day. For those who are his people, it will be a day of great rejoicing and celebration as faith becomes sight, as we go to be with God forever. Every tear wipes away, every sin put aside, every last bit of pain and sorrow no more. But we've seen the other side of this tonight too. For the rest, they die in their sins. They cannot go where Christ goes and where his people will go. For them, Christ returns as judge. He returns in wrath and terror. And those who are not found in him will be sent away into eternal condemnation. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may not be. We do not know the day and the hour of Christ's return. Will you trust in him? Will you believe in him today? And even beyond that, there are many others who have not heard. There are lost sheep of the house of Israel yet to be brought in. People are dying in their sins. Will you take this gospel to the people you know, the people you meet? May we all be so faithful to believe and to proclaim Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that Jesus Christ has been revealed to us as the light of the world. We thank you for the salvation that comes in him. We pray that all here gathered would have this salvation, that they would believe upon his name and thus have the right to become children of God. We pray also for the world around us that we would be salt and light, that we would take this gospel, this truth of salvation, to those who have not yet heard that you purpose to bring in. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.